Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, we are in the first week of November. This time we're recording this podcast. We had big elections this week. It was an off-year election, but still lots of things that garnered headlines, including a vote in Maine. Yeah, kind of, well, depressing vote in Maine. It depends on your point of view. That's very true. That's what we're going to get into. Voters decided to repeal Maine's new law allowing gay men and lesbians to wed. And it was kind of a shock. People thought, you know, Maine, very liberal state, very libertarian. Uh, they're going to be okay with with staying out of this debate. Yeah, because New England has been the hub so far of uh, the gay marriage movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like you said, they thought that Maine would be pretty solid, especially when you consider that some place like Iowa, which we would think Midwest, a little more conservative, just passed um, uh, same-sex marriage law as well this year, but there was no no referendum on that. So, Kristen, obviously this is a contentious issue. We can't make any sort of case about whether... What's right, what's wrong, and we definitely want to stay out of religious reasons for why yeah. people may support or not support this type of marriage. But we wanted to talk today about the difference between a civil union and marriage. Yeah, and it's, I was curious about this. I've been curious about this for a while because, uh, for instance, you hear a lot of politicians, including Obama, say things on the campaign trail like, you know, I am all for civil unions. I think that's great. But I think that marriage is between a man and a woman. And so it kind of makes it sound like it's just an argument in semantics, like who cares whether or not marriage applies to a man and a woman or a man and a man or two women? Does it really matter? So I wanted to know legally what is the background of all of this? So like you said, we're not, we're going to stay out of politics and religion as much as we can and really focus on the legal background to marriages, civil unions, and a little bit of domestic partnership thrown in as well. Yeah. We don't want to offend anyone religiously today. We just want to offend lawyers. Yeah. With our, with our interpretation of the law and the constitution. <laughs> So let's start off just with the stuff we found about definitions of civil unions versus marriage. Yeah, and a lot of this starts in 1996 with the passage of the Defense of Marriage Act, and that was signed into law, surprisingly, by the very liberal um, Bill Clinton. And uh, it basically stipulated that for all federal legal purposes, marriage is a union between one man and one woman defined as spouse. And not only that, but it stipulated that states cannot um basically enforce their same-sex marriage laws onto other states. So, for instance, if I go to Iowa and I get married, if I come back here to Georgia, Georgia does not have to recognize my same-sex marriage. Right. And because it's on the federal level, you also don't get the right to federal benefits that married couples do. Yeah, there are. This is according to factcheck.org. There are three main provisions um, that differentiate marriage and civil unions. And the first one is taxes, um, because couples in a civil union can file a joint state tax return, but they must file federal tax returns as single people. Right. And that's just one of the 1,138 federal laws that affect married couples that wouldn't affect someone who got married in Iowa, let's say. Mm -hmm. And then um, you also have issues with health insurance. Um, According to 
uh, GLAD organization, it comes down to what's governed by state law and what's subject to federal oversight. So it gets a little complicated. But basically, if a private employer's health plans are subject to, let's say, Massachusetts state insurance laws, then the benefits have to be ex- extended to the same-sex spouse. Or if the health plan is governed by the federal law, on the other hand, the employer can choose whether or not to extend such benefits. So you're going to see this theme a lot, state versus federal law. And the last big one is Social Security survivor benefits. You know, if you're a married couple, then you have the right to the Social Security based on the earnings of the married couple rather than just the person who's still living's earnings. And so you're not eligible for that um, if you have a same-sex marriage in a state that allows it. Yeah, and... um like you said, this is, these are just broad categories because mm-hmm. there are over a thousand different federal laws on the books that have, um, provisions specifically for married people, which under the Defense of Marriage Act applies only to a man and a woman who are spouses. Now, Kristen said there are three things that differentiate civil unions and marriage. And those first two, they're pretty concrete. The third one is a little bit more nebulous because it all comes down to the terminology of marriage. And I think that this will be the aspect we spend the least amount of time in because this is when you get into maybe a religious viewpoint on what is the marriage. You know, is a marriage specifically for a man and woman to raise a child, as it's sort of historically been? Um, is it a religious sacrament because yeah. you're doing it in a church or religious setting? Yeah. So what exactly does the word mean to a person who can do it and a a person who is prohibited from doing it now? You know, some people say, well, I want this word to apply to me because it has all this cultural weight. And others are saying, well, this civil union should be good enough for you because you have these rights and not those rights. Right. But at the same time, like if you don't allow someone to, I mean, a marriage is the most public pronouncement of your commitment to someone that you can make. So... By virtue of that, like a civil union is kind of like just having a civil union seems like second place. Yeah, second place, just leftovers of, you know, it's not it's not quite there. But I don't think we can make any sort of, you know, decision on this terminology. We really can't change the cultural weight of marriage. So we wanted to look at what we could look at just from, you know, the, the least biased point of view. And we decided that that was to go over the old laws. Yeah. The Constitution. Yeah, I was kind of surprised um, looking at the legal precedents that have led us up to um, this big landmark cases um, in Massachusetts, for instance, where they first uh, legalized civil unions. And uh, I was surprised that it all comes down to this question of whether or not the Constitution grants us a right to privacy, because there is no place that explicitly states, you know, citizens of the U.S. are have a right to privacy. Yeah. So it all has to do with uh, judicial interpretation of the Constitution. Right. And this is, you know, like Kristen said, I was surprised that it all came down to this right as well, because I'm used to hearing about right to privacy um, in relation to abortion. Often I've got legal scholars who tell me, you know, a case like Roe v. Wade is not well structured because we have no constitutional right to privacy. And this is the same argument that um, underlies this whole issue. So let's start off with one of the biggest cases that says that we do have some sort of fundamental privacy as U.S. citizens, and that's Griswold v. Connecticut. And we should say that this information is coming from the Pew Research Center, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan research group. So with that, Griswold versus Connecticut, 1965. This is all about um, Connecticut law prohibiting the sale and use of birth control. And so this was a case charging that that was unconstitutional because it intruded on the right to marital privacy. 
Right. And so in writing this majority opinion, Justice Waymo Douglas asserts that the, that married couples do have a right to privacy, not because the Constitution says it, but because that there are provisions sort of relating to it that you could say now apply to this modern standard. Like if we have a Third Amendment right to refuse to quarter soldiers during peacetime, then that means, you know, you have some sort of right to close your door to the world and say, you know, I'm not letting you in. And he says that what amendments like that do are cast penumbras or shadows onto where we can reasonably believe them to exist, the home being one of them. Mm -hmm. And then in 1967, we have another famous case, um, Loving versus Virginia. And this was a challenge to a Virginia law banning interracial marriage. And I thought that this case was really interesting because some people have compared um, the this question over gay marriage to um uh, interracial marriage back in the day when it was illegal for um, blacks and whites to marry. It was sort of the same argument of separate but equal being treated like second class citizens. And um, the, the court ruled that the law violated the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause. And I thought that this was... Um, Interesting from Chief Justice Earl Warren, he wrote, the freedom to marry has long been recognized as one of the vital personal rights essential to the orderly pursuit of happiness by free men. Marriage is one of the basic civil rights of men fundamental to our very existence and survival. Yeah. So that's some pretty weighty stuff. (laughs) Weighty stuff. But then, I mean, you've got people who come in and say survival means that it's a man and a woman having children to continue the species. So it's still, I don't know, so... It's it's so loaded. Still get down to semantics. Semantics. All right, Kristen, let's turn away from semantics to everyone's favorite subject, sodomy. All right. Something that happened in our own backyard. Sodomy in Georgia. Sodomy no in less. Georgia. That is where we're doing our podcast today. So it. So let's give our, our history a shout out with the case, 1986 case of Bowers versus Hardwick. <laughs> yeah, not the not the best historical shout out to Atlanta, <laughs> because basically the Atlanta police arrested um, a, a gay couple for having consensual sex um in their in their homes awesome atlanta (laughs) unfortunately georgia at the time had some anti-sodomy laws as did many states uh leftover relics and um you know the state dropped its case against hardwick but hardwick sued the state alleging that it was a criminal act to come into his home violates his constitutional right to privacy if he's doing this in his home consensually and in a five to four ruling the Supreme Court ruled that the constitutional right to privacy did not protect the right to have private consensual sex with a person of the same gender. Which, to me, that kind of blows my mind because it is not until 2003 with the case of Lawrence v. Texas that it takes on the similar uh, sodomy laws. And then the Supreme Court finally overruled the Bowers decision and invalidated not only Texas's anti-sodomy laws, but all state anti-sodomy laws. 2003, Molly. Well, they were saying that in that time, that was when states were like, oh, we didn't realize we had all these sodomy laws. You know, times have changed. Okay, now we'll admit sodomy is okay. But I do want to go back. Um, you know, it was a bitterly divided opinion, Bowers versus Hardwick. And I did like this thing from the dissent of in that opinion, Justice Blackman, who wrote that by just focusing on the homosexual aspect of the sodomy, you were distorting the ultimate question before the court by ignoring the fact that the Georgia statute outlaws, 
outlawed sodomy between heterosexuals as well as homosexuals. With the case actually concerned, he wrote, was the most comprehensive of rights and the right most valued by civilized men, namely the right to be let alone. Mm-hmm. So by focusing the case on whether you could, in fact, have sodomy, it just it distorted the case, is his opinion. Yeah, and then um, I think there's also an interesting point that Justice Kennedy makes when he was writing on the Lawrence versus Texas decision in 2003, and he said that gay people have, quote, liberty under the due process clause that gives them the full right to engage in intimate conduct without intervention of the government. Now, the thing is that all these cases, of course, garnered attention and criticism because you're always going to have this argument um, of how much a judge can change law and how much a judge is just supposed to interpret the law. And a lot of these cases that we've mentioned have been criticized um, as cases of judicial activism where these judges are finding things that really don't exist in the Constitution and and putting them in place. So it's worth mentioning that even though we're citing these as, you know, the standards, not everyone would agree that these are the best standards. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I also don't know how you how a judge cannot at some point revise the law based on interpretation, not because of what is explicitly stated in the Constitution, because or else we, we would have so many antiquated laws on our books and our society would be even more backward than it already is. But that's the kind of statement that I'm hoping the constitutional people will write in and tell us why why that's a wrong idea. Yeah. What's what's so what's come so on, constitutional lovers, come tell on, us what's boys. up. Um, so that, though, takes us up to a very landmark case which is Goodridge versus the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. And this is when the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court ruled that the state's constitution requires the government to offer, quote, the protections, benefits, and obligations conferred by civil marriage, civil marriage, note that civil, uh, to two individuals of the same sex who wish to marry. Big deal. This is a big deal. And in writing for the majority, uh, the Chief Justice Margaret Marshall held that denying marriage benefits to same-sex couples violated the state constitution because it didn't accomplish a legitimate government goal. And by that, the court explained that the reasons the government offered for banning same-sex marriage um, in terms of like promoting procreation, ensuring good child-rearing environment, and preserving the state's financial resources, which are all basically why we have the government institution of marriage right now, mm-hmm. um, it would not be promoted by prohibiting same-sex couples to marry because you can't say that two people of the same sex in a marital relationship could not still provide all of those things. Even though some of them just claim that it will. Yeah. But again, that's not the argument we're going to make. So they're saying that you can't condemn a lifestyle as a constitutionally adequate reason for denying marriage benefits. Mm-hmm. It doesn't affect these other couples so if you were to say, no, you can't do this, that is a constitutional violation. Yeah. And so then after after Massachusetts, we have um, some other states in New England who also um, pass laws allowing civil unions. And now we also have states that like Iowa that allow same sex marriage. And most recently, I, I think the most famous um, court case that has come up was uh in last year's elections with the very contentious Proposition 8 issue where California had passed a law to allow same-sex marriage and then um, anti-gay marriage activists um, pushed this thing called Proposition 8 onto uh, the ballot that year and they had a referendum and the people voted down the same-sex marriage legislation. Yeah, and I thought that Pew pointed out a pretty interesting difference between the Goodridge and California decisions. 
Um, the Massachusetts court in Goodrich found a right to same-sex marriage on the ground that there is no rational basis for denying marital rights to same-sex couples. But the California court went significantly further, elevating gays and lesbians to have the same protected legal status as racial minorities and women. So it just ties in how you view this battle, I think. But, you know, one thing we kind of skipped over, Kristen, um, was what happened in Hawaii in the 1990s. And that's how we we sort of got DOMA in the first place. The Defense of Marriage Act. Yes, that you had read earlier. Yes. Um, basically, Hawaii had interpreted their constitution to show that same-sex couples did receive the same rights and benefits of marriage. And this sort of freaked people out because they thought everyone would just fly to Hawaii and come back with a marriage certificate that they were going to have to honor as a state. Mm-hmm. I mean, that sounds like it'd be really good for Hawaii tourism, but maybe not so good for people when they came back and wanted, you know, the tax breaks um, the social security benefits, et cetera. So that's why there was this push to have this federal mandate that, you know, if, if you came back with the marriage certificate from Hawaii, you know, it's not going to hold. Nebraska didn't have to recognize yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so that brings us pretty much up to Maine and the present day. And so right now on the books, what we've got in the United States are Massachusetts, Connecticut, Iowa, Vermont, and New Hampshire begins in January 1st, 2010 to allow same-sex couples to marry and have no residency requirement. In addition, uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, Spain, South Africa, Norway, and Sweden allow same-sex couples to marry, but most of these countries have requirements, so you really can't fly in just for a, a Belgian wedding and some and some fries and some beer and then leave and, and have it recognized. But Canada has become this icon of a place where you can get married, have no residency requirement, and then um, if you go home... It, the marriage will be recognized in Massachusetts, Connecticut, Iowa, Vermont, and New Hampshire starting in 2010. Yeah. And uh, right now, at least six states outside of New England have same-sex marriage bills before their legislature for this legislative term, but uh, none are expected to pass. And see, this gets into, you know, there's, I think, this conversation right now about how you go about getting um, gay marriage to be allowed more places they're trying to do this state by state thing. And, you know, the New York Times is writing that this main decision has some people thinking that this is not the right tack to take. But you don't want to just go straight to the Supreme Court and risk them outlawing it forevermore. Right. It's such a complicated um, issue when you start looking at all of the, the legal background, because while it does seem like, you know, the best fix would be something akin to Roe v. Wade, you know, making a federal statute that legalizes gay marriage across, you know, all 50 states. But at the same time, that would also take away from state sovereignty, which is very important for our democracy as well. Yeah. But we're no legal scholars, which is why I thought this was pretty, you know, interesting to look back at the history of the legal part. And I'm hoping our listeners listeners will write in not so much with a religious defense of one position or another, but just how you think this shakes down legally. So Molly and I ran across also um, an interesting paper written by a Yale legal scholar who suggested that instead of same-sex marriage, she thinks the language is just, it's, it's, it's problematic. Um, and she suggests that instead of same-sex marriage, we should call it genderless marriage. Um, and she says because, for two reasons, she says, first, nowhere in the world is marriage defined legally, socially, or otherwise as a union of two persons of the same sex. It is defined either as the union of any two persons, as in Massachusetts, or as the union of a man and a woman, as in um, with the 48, 49 states outside of Massachusetts. And she says, second, when people confront the marriage issue, the term same-sex marriage 
And others like it will often prompt them to think of a new, different, and separate marriage arrangement or institution like civil unions um, that will coexist with the old man-woman marriage institution. But she thinks that with genderless marriage, there can really only be, it can apply to everyone. Right. Although you did send me um, some information um, from the other side about how opening up that definition is like a slippery slope of, you know, according to some people, will eventually people want to marry like a horse? Right. That was from, yeah, that was a clip from the family, very conservative family research council that says, quote, but once marriage is no longer confined to a man and a woman, it is impossible to exclude virtually any relationship between two or more partners of either sex, even non-human partners, which sounds ridiculous. I mean, we, we, we're trying to present this in an unbiased way, but. But once again, you know, that, that, that also gets into, uh, the very contentious political debate, um, and, and religious debate. I think it all kind of ties together because marriage is something that is so central to human culture. Right. Everywhere. Right. And so, so it should be a big deal. Yeah. But treating people as second class citizens by not extending them the same basic civil rights, um, as other people does seem a little messed up, may I say? And you know, we've been trying to avoid going into various religious viewpoints on this, but you know, I was raised that marriage was uh, a sacrament of the church, mm-hmm. and it seems that there are people who are not religious who get to use the word marriage. So I, I wouldn't mind everyone getting to have the civil union. And then religious people getting to have the marriage. And if you're two people of the same gender, if you've got a church that's willing to recognize that, that's one thing. And if, you know, if you're not religious and you're a male and a woman, man and a woman, just go down to the courthouse yourself. See, that still complicates things because why do we need to have separate categories in the first place? I mean, I just don't, I don't think we're ever going to be able to get rid of, replace marriage with something else, you know, no, it's been, it's been around. Either. It's been around far too long. But you know, if you just want to just cut through all the all the BS, just get a domestic partnership. All it takes, you just have to go and say that you're over eighteen and love each other, sign some papers. Yes, it's so romantic. And then to if go you want to get your domestic <laughs> partnership, yeah. Then. And then if you want to, if you want to break up, because if you, this was one thing I was wondering: how do you dissolve a civil union? Is it the same way? And according to Vermont law. It's handled in the exact same way as uh, as a divorce. You know what I liked is that um, let's say you you have this crazy idea to run off to Canada and get married, and then all of a sudden you want to get a divorce. One of you has to live there for a year, so it's very easy to get married in Canada. Very hard to get divorced, but you got to hang out there for a while. A year's not bad, Molly. A year, I, I a year could definitely spend a year in Canada. Yeah, but again, Take that's. That's just a personal thing that which, I like Canada. Which is why, Molly, I think that we should do away with husbands and wives and spouses. Just call each other the lovers. <laughs> why, why worry about marriage anyway? No. Life's too short. Because of all this <laughs> cultural pressure. That's the kind of stuff we unload every week on mom stuff. Yes. But, you know, again, we tried to be unbiased, but I'm sure there are people out there with some strong opinions. Let us know where we maybe screwed up with our interpretation of the law. Yeah. What you think the word should be? Should it be lover, like Kristen suggests, or should it be something like? Well, I don't even have a suggestion. That's I don't why know. I'm asking you. But if anything, we hope that you all did find it the the legal background to it as interesting as Molly and I did, because now I know the difference between a marriage and a civil union, and it's all about state and federal disunion, I guess. Yeah, and I know a lot more about the laws regarding sodomy. Always handy, always a good party conversation trick. How about that sodomy? Do you know your laws regarding sodomy? Okay. Um, on that note, 
let's change the let's, subject. Yeah, let's change the subject because it's getting it's getting awkward in this <laughs> studio. Uh, let's do some listener mail. Okay. All right. I have um, an email here from a young man, Andy. So Andy was circumcised as a baby, and he is now in the process of regrowing his foreskin, which we uh, talked about in the show. We said that it was possible, but we really didn't go into too much detail about it. So Andy says that he wears a silicon device that pulls his foreskin taut and slightly stretches it. He said over time, a period of a year or two, this constant stretching will actually grow new skin. As the foreskin cells are stretched, new ones actually grow in the gaps, making the stretching permanent. The tugger that he wears can be comfortable uncomfortable at times, and sometimes he has to take it off, but in general, he tries to wear it close to 24 hours a day if possible. He says, I'm in the middle of the process and can see a distinct and remarkable growth of the foreskin. The glands change from a cracked dry skin, ouch, to a smoother, healthier looking and feeling skin. And overall, he was very disappointed that he was circumcised as a child and hopes that parents will leave the decision to their baby boys when they grow up. Okay. Interesting. Thanks, Andy. I've got another circumcision email from Stuart who says, unlike my father, I was not circumcised. Our family doctor at the time recommended against it, and at this point in my life, I'm very grateful my parents listened to the medical professional, but I did not always have this opinion. Growing up in the mid-80s as an uncircumcised uncircumcised boy was very awkward. The first time I used the communal showers after gym class was traumatic. Of my entire class, I was the only boy with foreskin, so I was the freak for quite a while. However, with the number of circumcisions steadily decreasing and access to information far greater than back then, I surmise that the new generation of men won't suffer the same treatment. So to those fathers out there insisting on circumcising their sons so they don't suffer the same humiliation they witnessed, dished out, or themselves received, times have changed. Don't worry about it. He writes that, from my experience, I concur with your statement that cleanliness is the most important thing for a parent to teach their new baby boy. And then this, um, what he writes, I'm skipping a little bit, Stuart. Um, remember your old circumcision index that you uh, formulated, Kristen? Yeah. Stewart writes that, you know, we mentioned that circumcisions were done in the U.S. partially because of the recession, but they're also dramatically done in Canada, which, as you know, has a social health care system. Where the procedure is free here, it would indicate that a lack of money may not be a major reason more parents in Western cultures are choosing to forego the procedure. So much for the circumcision index. Oh. But if there are other things that we've said that you'd like to prove or disprove, send us an email, momstuff at howstuffworks.com. Check out our blog, How To Stuff, where we write daily on how to do things. Could you ask for anything more useful? No. I'm and shaking my head. She is. And if you just want to learn more about marriage and all the cultural weight that that implies, head on over to HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?